So we have six programs right now that are subject to, and we aren't aware of another college doing this, our money back guarantee program. What that means is if a student graduates from that program and they work earnestly with our placement professionals and they can't find a job within six months of graduation, we refund all their tuition. That's great because all these students are taking this risk. They're going into debt. to have today Chancellor Mike Reeser, who runs Texas State Technical College, as well as uh, Michael Bettersworth. You're the chief innovation officer, I understand, amongst other things. That's it, right. And, and you know, Texas State Technical College is obviously an extraordinary success story, so we're really excited to talk about how, how that came about and how you guys have really even improved it over the last decade. Uh, first, maybe a little, love to hear a little bit about your backgrounds and how you came to the current work you're doing. You want to go first, Mike? Sure. Thank you, Joe. First, I want to say it's a pleasure to be with you today, and we look forward to our conversation. So, uh, I uh, came to TSTC in the late 90s after about two decades in commercial banking. And that may seem like an odd career hop, but I'll tell you that in retrospect, uh, being a commercial banker was an ideal uh, forward, if you would, to being in higher education. Why is that? The reason is, as a commercial banker, to do it well, you get really engaged with a lot of really smart people particularly entrepreneurs and successful business folks, and you get to know what works and what doesn't. And all of those lessons that I got to learn by proxy in the banking world came forward to TSTC, and many of the innovations that we do today were actually lessons learned back in a previous career. Hmm. And Michael, what's your background? I've been with the college for around 20 years, so I started there when I was 14. And, uh, no, so I, I've, I came to the college from, uh, from Austin, from a place called IC Squared, uh, Innovation, Creativity, and Capitalism. And at the time, this, uh, this research institute, which was founded by a gentleman named George Kosmetsky, was, was basically exporting capitalism to former Soviet bloc countries and other places around the world. That's awesome. The idea being, if we have successful companies happening in this parts of the world, we'll be less likely to have more conflict. So I came to TSTC because we kind of do the same thing domestically when we help somebody pick up skills that are applicable in the You're economy. bringing people into the capitalist part yeah. of our society yeah. by giving them relevant skills. That's right. So if somebody has competencies and skills that, that they can earn a living, they can thrive, they can be successful here, and, and then we're, we're preserving liberty in effect so one of the reasons I we noticed you guys and we're, we're so impressed is that is that you've really raised the salaries of your graduates over the last decade and, and in fact you believe you're the first public college system to have the the funding from the government be tied to the earnings of your graduates and and Mike how did that come about so that's one of those classic success stories where uh, opportunity came into uh, contact with preparation about 15 years ago, we were getting a bit restless because the way in which we were funded was encouraging an awful lot of input activities, but wasn't focused on the final result that both our students and the employers were seeking. So when the Texas legislature began to talk to higher ed about would anybody like to uh, consider a, an outcomes-based approach, we were primed and ready to go. So we raised our hand and said, we want to do that. And, and, and what does it look like to operate an institution where you're focused on these outcomes? How's that different? This approach has aligned the best interests of the students, the, the institution, the taxpayers who support us, and the employers who hire our graduates. 
all those stakeholders win when the student gets a great job at the end and we receive our funding. How did it shift the culture of the institution when you did this? Well, the culture has always been focused on job placement. The, the, the college was started in 1965. This was the, the Cold War was raging and we needed technicians. So a lot of the early programs were in precision machining and avionics and things that you needed to build rockets and other kinds of things. That's so cool. it was very mission centered from its beginning, uh, located on former Air Force bases. And that's carried forward over the last 55 years. The, the mission, however, with contact hour funding, the traditional way of funding higher education is really focused on what can I sell to a student. So I'm selling programs into the student customer. When we, when we shift the funding model to placement and earnings, now the, the primary market is where can I place my students? Interesting. So, so, so you ahead of time are thinking about where you're going to place them and, and talking to the yes. companies. And that, that, was there, that was there always in the background, I think, over the years. But this brings it to the foreground. So if we have a product, and I say products sometimes with our degree programs because they often are, they're, they're like products with product managers that need to be accountable for man, running their programs. Uh, we need to look to the market. Where can we place? What are the earnings? Where's the demand? What are the skills? And then how well are we doing in that? So we need to have feedback from employers. So, so how big is this system? I mean, how many people are you pushing through this every year? Um, the total enrollment now is around 12,000. Um, we used to be 20,000 back uh, in, in days when I think we were more focused on enrollment than placement. Got it. So while our enrollment number has actually contracted over this over this transition, the placement numbers and the output and completion numbers continue to go up. Mm -hmm. uh, so now, now is, the, is, the incent, is the incentive not to also to enroll more, to be able to place more too? Or, or, absolutely. Or, so, so you there, do want to grow it. Yeah. There is, but I, I'd like to build on that if I could. Sure. The, you know, asking a college what's your enrollment is not unlike asking a manufacturer, how many widgets do you have on the assembly line right now? Mm -hmm. When what truly is the metric that we're looking to drive is how many do we complete and put into the workplace. Yep. And so one of the things that you can find in our culture is we've got a brand new focus on the throughput rates of our students. Mm -hmm. And that's impacted most everything that we do. So we're more concerned with how many do we put out than how many happen to be in the laboratory at this given moment. Those are works in progress. And the final at graduation and placement is when we finally get to complete our mission. That's a great point. The, the contact hour model encourages you to keep as many students enrolled for as long as you can because you're selling units, semester credit hour yeah. units. This model says we want to get as many people through the pipeline as we can, as you're, fast as we you can. You actually try to deliver a result as opposed to just keep right. people hanging out of school. That's right. Why, so, why, why is it such a novel thing? I mean, obviously, we're trying to spread this to our places now, but academia seems overall very resistant to the idea of being held accountable. I guess no one likes to be held accountable, but what in particular are, are they pushing back on, do you think? That's really hard to say. Um, I could I could share with you what I've heard from some of my colleagues, and, and that is that the nature of the academy is one that has many purposes, not merely teaching students. For mm -hmm. example, the creation of new knowledge and and research, um, contributions to culture. Um, mm -hmm. and things like that. Some people believe moral action in society, training citizens to be a citizen in a liberal democracy. These, exactly. are, all, these are important things as well. Mm -hmm. And what TSTC is blessed with was a very narrow mission. And that is solely this, create a skilled workforce in technical fields that are in high demand 
in Texas. So you think it may be the case that there's some schools, maybe Harvard, whether or not we agree with some of the values they're teaching, maybe Harvard shouldn't be fully accountable to their students' salaries because there's lots of other things they're doing. Or do you think this isn't something they should apply to all to all universities? How do you guys think about that? I, I would I would offer this, and I actually answered a university chancellor one one day saying this very thing. If you look at some of the programs in a comprehensive university, and say Harvard or any of the selective universities, when you look at the practice practitioner degrees like accounting and law and finance and engineering. They should have goals there. Those are all degrees that are going to result in outstanding economic impact. Yeah. That by itself creates a value base that would easily justify the funding for an entire university so that the softer programs, if you will, are carried by those who have a more tangible economic return. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. I'm curious, I'm curious on the formula. When, when we were first talking about this, before I even knew about you guys, we were, we were trying to explore these models, and we were wondering if someone comes from very poor parents in a poor area versus people who come from a, priv from a privileged area, the, the results are going to be different on, on average, almost no matter what. It turns out kids' salaries are very correlated with their parents' salaries to some degree. That's, that's what the economic data tells us. And so at first, my instinct was, should the formula take into account and give you credit for helping people who maybe came from a bad place, even if they went up, you know, if they don't go up as much as other kids? And have, have you guys thought of anything like that, or is, is that not really? Well, the, there, there is a baseline uh, portion to the formula, but it isn't mm. where the kid where the student starts, the baseline is instead, what is it that a student is likely to realize before their college education? And Got that it. is minimum wage. Yep. And so we, we actually measure our results with minimum wage as the baseline. So you compare things to minimum wage and the That's lift right. you're getting, which, is, which means really anyone could be, should be able to be helped from that base. That's right. Yeah, we, we, we want to be generic. So one of the rules of anybody considering models like this is the fewer variables, the better. Mm. Every additional variable that we add adds complexity, it adds confusion, and it will drive behavior in unintended ways. Fair. So from the beginning, we wanted the model to have as much simplicity as, as so we could let's design. Let's go to the model. T sure. Tell me about the return value formula. How does that work? So here's here it it's got some complexity to it, despite our efforts. But here we have some it is smart simply. listeners. We can tell them. Yeah. Yeah. Here it is. Oh, yes. <laughs> Here it is simply. A student, uh, a student attends TSTC for a minimum period of time. And then when they leave TSTC, the workforce system in Texas begins to track them in the workplace. They are measured for five years of employment. And then that aggregate earnings amount is compared to what they would have earned at minimum wage. Mm -hmm. And the difference is the imputed value that we added to that student. Mm -hmm. And then we get paid essentially a commission, a on placement the, fee. On the imputed value. On that imputed That's value. That's great. Mm -hmm. That's great. So, what, so whatever the extra value is, you're taking a percentage of that. And this seems like a much better way to hold a school accountable than to just put kids in debt to go to school. Huh? Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> now, yes. now, 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 what's it cost? To, what's it cost someone to go through your schools? How's that work? We're roughly the same as a community college. 
So it's very modestly priced. We, uh, we have implemented um, variable tuition across our programs now. Mm -hmm. So certain programs that have a higher economic return, we can price at a higher rate. What's an example of some of the ones that have higher returns? Um, something like instrumentation, mm -hmm. process control, robotics, um, the pilot, our pilot training programs. Are, are there different skills you need coming into the school to be able to qualify to probably to learn some of those things? No, we're I, an open enrollment institution. Yeah, we're, we're open enrollment. I mean, um, it interest in the particular area is the most passionate But if someone thing. got 400 on their math SAT versus 600 on their math SAT, would you steer them differently or you don't, no, you, we, you don't do No, we that? don't look at those correlations of those traditional traditional tests. It's, people, most people are able to do anything if they're interested in it. I think so. I mean, what we want to find out, I'll give you an example. Um, we have a wind turbine technician program, so we own a That's wind cool. turbine in West Texas. Yep. And what we'll do is we'll do a climb test very, very early on to determine if somebody maybe has a latent fear of heights they didn't realize. We oh, don't uh, want you to realize mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. uh, yearly later when you're standing so three you, you help, help them figure it out and sh shift their career That's if they're right. not able to do and, it. And right. the same with blood mm -hmm. or dealing with patients and things like that. So we want I'm to do good, really good with blood myself. Right, right. Yeah. Really effective intake. We we really want because we're taking up limited space. A lot of our programs are over capacity. You know, we're turning students away. So we, we are open enrollment, but we want to have intentionality. Interesting. You're limited capacity because you don't have enough people hiring through them? Or, or facilities. Like, well, facilities. Yeah, yeah facilities. We're, we're limited on our... Should we be giving you guys more facilities to we train more people? That, yes, it's a great idea. <laughs> it's a great idea. That's right. It seems like this is a pretty high return on return on investment for we this, agree. Sort, of, this yeah. sort of thing. That On that investment, so the, the financial model is only measuring incomes over the five-year period. But the actual economic impact of a student over their lifetime is much, much more beyond what we're even measuring in the funding mm -hmm. formula. Mm -hmm. The funding formula, really quickly, this is important, the funding formula doesn't calculate the actual economic return of that graduate. It, it is capturing the economic return for a period of time. And what we did is we correlated with what our previous appropriation was from the state. Yeah. So we said, you were gonna give us this $100, we're gonna correlate the model to equal that. If we were actually getting paid if you're, more, if you're more successful, though, you can get more than we did, and we have. Yeah. So placements placements have gone up, and starting wages have gone up. That's uh, awesome. I, well, could I add on to Michael's yeah. uh, answer there? I think an interesting feature of this is is that since our re, uh, our uh, uh, taxpayer support is driven by the outcomes of our students, it's also blind to the amount of time it takes the student to complete their studies. Interesting. We have some short-term programs, say uh, one or two semesters, that rival the earnings of a two-year credential. Wow. And so what happens is we get paid the same amount of money for the for the person who leaves the short program as the person who so leaves the long. So your incentive would be to efficiently educate them. Efficiently. Yeah. It's, it, we, we like to say it this way. We teach them all the skills they need to qualify for an outstanding job. No more and no less. It was a huge return to society because you're, you're creating people who want to be part of a free society and want to want to vote for a society that, that uses markets to create value as opposed to something else. Critical to that is financial independence and having the, the your own means to um, to find your way and make a living. And so that's that's we're really accountable to that mission. So this approach you're taking is sometimes accused maybe of getting lower quality, uh, you know, lower quality people coming out in terms of they're not as good at what they do because you're getting them out so quickly. How, how do you respond to that? Well. Uh, I, I admit that from time to time we've been accused of that, but here's how I would answer it is. If the earnings of our graduates continue to grow, isn't that a direct indication of an increasing level of quality? And I can tell you that's true because 
everything we do starts with the end in mind. So this relationship that we built with the employers as it matures and deepens, it informs in a reverse engineering fashion those skills we're teaching so that our graduates are literally more qualified with each iteration as time goes by. And, and, and our quality is determined by those employers. And if they're paying more for our graduates year over year, that indicates that those em employees are more valuable. So they're serving a need. Mm -hmm. There's also a high degree of trust that the employer is placing in us, and it's fickle. So if we do not stand to our quality standards, if we send them a graduate that we said was qualified and they turned out not to be, we're going to lose credibility with that hiring manager, and it's very difficult to rebuild. So there is a vested interest in quality um, uh, throughout that cycle. What changes have, have occurred since the farm that went into effect? Have you guys tweaked it at all? Did we learn some things? Well, <laughs> one thing is, happened. we closed 14 programs. So we, we closed 14 programs, some of which out of, were, out of how many? Out of 50, 60, no, 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 more than 100. More than 100. More than 100. Okay. Yeah. yeah the okay. numbers have changed over mm -hmm. the 20 years. So we've gone from a dramatically a smaller number of products, if you will, or programs. So, so some of them just weren't working, and you found this out. We found mm -hmm. some of them were financially working for us. They were actually profitable. You charged people a lot, but the students weren't doing well. That's mm -hmm. right. The, the mm -hmm. pay and earnings mm -hmm. coming out, or they were programs that were off mission. You know, we were doing training and collecting contact hours, these units that we were getting paid for, but were they really about job placement? Were they really about economic mobility? No, they were collecting. That's fascinating. So there may be in many other states without these formulas, people spending lots of money going to school, maybe even going into debt and then not being able to get as good jobs because no one's looking at the outcomes on those, on those programs. Sure, I think mm -hmm. there's some, yeah, there's some great data on that underemployment that happens for college graduates because of that. Yeah. Let me add on to that too, uh, Joe, is that also the state is supporting those programs that mm -hmm. that are leading to to modest outcomes and mm -hmm. we have a duty to the taxpayer to optimize the return that they get off of every dollar that they spend Definitely. at TSTC and so by curating our program mix in such a way that we we're constantly sloughing off the low performers and focusing on what the economy needs now we are giving the taxpayer a maximized ROI mm -hmm. that's and awesome and shifting those resources that we're freeing up to grow capacity in these other areas. It's very so. very frustrating thinking about governments in other areas investing and spending lots of money on things that aren't working and there's there's no way to measure that. And so <laughs> you, you guys you guys are measuring it for them. It's really cool. It's like a, it's like a smart business approach to this sort of thing. What 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 are, what are the results you've seen as far as student wage growth? What are some of the numbers around that? Well, it, it, they've grown at, at, at an outstanding clip year over year for the past 10 years. Our earnings have gone up uh, as an aggregate in terms of that. And so the amount of funding that we have earned through this process has continued to grow, too. Um, however, this is new funding that was earned with results that were based on student success. And so it's a worthy Everyone's level winning, of winning together Every, on this. I, I heard one statistic winning. saying there's over 100 percent growth mm -hmm. in student earnings since, since 2014. Is, is that is that right? Or that's about that sounds about right. Yes. It's mm -hmm. huge. Mm -hmm. and, and how, how much of that? 
like 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 is that tied to certain new skills that were really great, or is it or like 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 where's where are those numbers coming from? I think there are two uh, factors in play, and maybe more. But the two big ones are by carefully curating our programs and and. Um, sunsetting those who are underperforming the market. It's like an investment portfolio mm -hmm. where we're constantly reviewing the lower performing. Uh, this is where your banking pieces. background comes in handy. Exactly. Yeah. And focusing in on the newer uh, and, and more productive ones. That's the way we curate the programs. The other is at the back end, in terms of our placement, we continue to deepen the relationship that we have with the industrial employers in Texas to ensure that we are matchmaking our graduates with the best jobs that are out there. This has been an important part because we've lo we're looking at the employers now more consciously. What are you paying our graduates? And yeah. the pay can vary quite substantially. They have, for, they have to pay well if they're going to work with you. That's right. Mm -hmm. So we now mm -hmm. have a fiduciary. That's interest cool. In you're kind of like the agent. You're like there you're you like go. the Michael Ovitz from mm. CAA of, for these for these technical school students. We, we used to use the metaphor that we were a staffing uh, agency, but I think that's the wrong metaphor. We're really yeah. a recruiting agency, and we have both the student yeah. and the employer's best interest in mind. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. But if somebody is underpaying our graduates, the model is we're going to invite them off of the campus if if you're underpaying. These super high end agents in LA are you know. WME and CAA, they give these service to make sure people get paid well. You can, keep, right. you can have a brand there, maybe. We're incentivized. Everybody's incentivized <laughs> to have that financial output. Um, That's that, uh, that, that, and and do, you, do you follow up at all, like a year or two later sometimes? Because you have incentives to now, which you wouldn't have before. We, we've done follow-up surveys for a long time, exit interviews, and then we look at the data. So we established a business intelligence team. Most of the data analytics done in higher education is in a compliance fashion for reporting. We put the data analytics group in the CFO's shop. Um, and it's about performance optimization. So we do a lot of data analytics uh, looking for correlations, mm -hmm. what's working, what's not working. Is, is there anything you could actually do after someone's left a year, two, three out? Because you actually have incentives even then to make sure they're succeeding, to make sure that they're, they're upping their game. Like, what can you be doing to help them? So historically, our offerings were locked into semesters. Yeah. So our ability to do upskilling and reskilling in small pockets was very constrained. So the, the biggest initiative that's going on right now is this shift away from semester based to what's called competency-based, um, more, more popular uh, sense, but we call it performance-based education. What that's going to mm -hmm. enable us to do, and we just launched these uh, products uh, this past mm -hmm. semester, mm -hmm. is what's called multiple entry and multiple exit. And many other, some other institutions have been pioneering this for some time in, in the, in the for-profit space, perhaps more. We have now embraced this. So what that allows us to do, instead of only having a fall start, we can start students multiple times throughout the year. That's going to make our ability to do upskilling and reskilling for That's students great. that have left much more accessible instead of having them locked in. See, it, feels, it feels like universities should have the incentive to follow up and help people with their careers. This kind of gives you that a little bit. Yes, there, there, it certainly does. And there's also a, we put a guarantee on some programs that right. also Let's, makes us accountable. How does that work? Uh, so we have six programs right now that are subject to, and we aren't aware of another college doing this, our money back guarantee program. What that means is if a student graduates from that program,
and they work earnestly with our placement professionals and they can't find a job within six months of graduation, we refund all their tuition. That's great because all these students are taking this risk. They're going into debt. Mm-hmm. You guys mm-hmm. are saying that, that so it's, all, it's almost like it's almost related to kind of what they're called ISAs or income share agreements. It's, yep. it's, not, it's, not, it's not what you're doing, but 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 it's, it's, it's kind of actually better for the students than an ISA, obviously. But the, the reason ISAs appeal to a lot of us is there's something where you can go to school for free and you pay for it later based on your success. Mm-hmm. You're effectively giving them even better deal than that because if you don't if you don't get a job you get you get you don't have to pay anything. We, we are exploring ISAs. We've actually partnered with a vendor to begin experimenting with ISAs where federal financial aid doesn't provide funding. Yep. If we're talking about um, reskilling and upskilling, this is short-term training programs, and Title IV federal financial aid won't apply. And the loan market for those programs, is uh, for those kinds of things, is not very appealing. So ISAs are, we think, very useful for short-term training where there's not additional yep. financing. That makes a lot of sense. Kind of like the coding schools are using them. Correct. Re- re- correct. To that. And we think there's a lot of students who will, who will like that. It's a natural for us to consider as part of our suite of resources for students. And the reason is we already share the employment risk with the student. And so the notion of an ISA doesn't enhance our risk whatsoever. Yeah, that's good. You're, you're, you're already, you're already along those lines anyway. So mm-hmm. for you, it's natural, a natural thing. Mm-hmm. Well, this is it's something we think a lot about is this, this, there's always students going into debt who aren't getting skills and it feels like the universities and the colleges should be the ones bearing that risk and that would force them to, to be better. You guys think about that at all on a broader scale? I mean, gainful employment was nationally an effort that brought more transparency on employment outcomes to higher education. Um, and I was of the belief personally that that should have been applied broadly across all Title IV. I think that transparency yeah. on earnings is a good thing. Title, to have. Title IV, to be clear, our listeners is, is the is a student loan correct is the title. Correct. Yeah. Um, there's there's also a piece of leg- legislation that's been introduced called Student Right to Know Before You Go Act. And so these have to do with showing more transparency on employment outcomes. Those, are, I, those have been introduced, but they haven't been passed yet. Correct. Right? Which you no, know, is a lot of schools don't want people to. Know know that they have such a low graduation rate, low employment rate, obviously that'd be better for students to be able to have that awareness. There's, there's resistance to that kind of transparency, but a more informed, the belief that a more informed consumer who's, as you said, they're taking a risk, not only with their finances, but with their time. The opportunity cost is a huge factor of somebody spending time enrolled in a program. So, uh, And we're also talking about a young consumer for the most part. So you think about an industry where someone's going to be buying, uh, we were talking about it this morning, someone's going to buy a car. You know, and what kind of cars, if you say, an 18 year old you have unlimited finances what car would you like yeah they might they, they might buy the wrong one convertible well i would suggest right that's exactly what they do is they often pick uh, the wrong one i i, yeah. I think an, a lot of students see the uh, particularly a four-year university track as something of a magic pathway one that might be monolithic in other words just Pick, uh, pick a school and go, and you'll be okay when you get out. Yeah. But the truth of the matter is, uh, your pathway through higher ed could follow a thousand different pathways, and some are far more lucrative than others. And an 18-year-old often struggles to choose the one that actually will help them achieve that American dream they're striving for. In fact, there are some whose employment outcomes are so unreliable that those are often the students who end up underemployed and buried in, in student. And, the, and those schools are pushing back on any, any sort of accountability. But so, so, you know, we, we started, 
we started the show to push back on some of the pessimism going on around our country mm -hmm. today. And there's a lot of people who are in debt and they're pessimistic. Like how can education leaders and government leaders take some of these ideas and, and give some optimism to people and kind of can fix how this part of our country works? I think TSDC is an exemplar of optimism. Everything we do begins with the end in mind. And our notion of the end is that each one of us can realize the American dream. And our version of the dream is different for each person. The pathways that we curate for students are proven to help them realize those dreams that we have. And so we see our mission as a means to an end, and that end is mutual prosperity. And it seems like a lot of the frustration today are millennials who are in college debt and they didn't get the right skills and they're, and they're, they're, not, they're not succeeding. Like, are, are there, like what, what can we do to teach more teach more governors, teach more leaders of colleges about what you guys have done? What are, the, what are the lessons you'd want to make sure they learned? Well, podcasts like this help probably in getting out the word. Uh, we've One of the things that's happened since we've done this funding formula is we've been invited to to, to talk a lot about it, to, to testify in other states' legislatures uh, about this, and recently in Florida. Uh, and so there's a, a lot of interest and growing interest from legislators in these kinds yeah, of my, policies. My, my, my policy group, the Cicero Institute, was just telling you ahead of time, we're actually sp spending a lot of time. This is one of our 10 big reforms we're pushing to over, over 10 states right mm -hmm. now, and, and it looks like there's a lot of interest a lot in this. Of interest. So. Really excited to teach them uh, about it. I, I would say that core towards these kinds of models working are the data systems that support them, and mm -hmm. they are not equal from state to state. And it's a little pedantic, it's a little in the weeds, but we use unemployment insurance wage records, UI wage records, mm -hmm. in order to do this linkage. And you, to and you need that data. Does every, not every state has that data. Not every state yet. has that data. Most of them, most of them do, but do they make it publicly available, machine readable, that tools I, can be built? I, I, I love this. One of the, one of one of the nonprofits I've been backing in another area is data on prison recidivism and you can't actually make the prisons better unless you start learning right. with exact data what's happening. So it's the same thing here. We can't actually improve the schools, create systems of accountability and funding unless we have really good data it, showing what's happening. Exactly. And so, you know, three out of four students are going to higher education for job specific skills. That's a, that's a, that's a study that's done every year by the Higher Education Research Institute. Um, four out of five are there for out of interest for an occupation. So, wow. so that is a pervasive interest, occupational outcomes. So having more data that shows occupational outcome, um, right, which is earnings, uh, job title, uh, the institution they went to and the program from which they graduated. It, it, These are the magic it, it, numbers. It seems so obvious, but the special interests, of course, are very skeptical. As I remember when I was at Palantir 15 years ago and we were exploring different ways to help the federal government. And we went into the Department of Education and we were going to show them something they could do to use data to do a better job. And we put something up on the screen and the people, they covered their eyes. They said, we're not allowed to see that data. And I said, what? And apparently, apparently the special interests are so powerful in some of these see areas the that they've actually like made rules about what mm -hmm. they want them to see and not see. So well, it does it does seem like there's a little bit of convincing we have to do and maybe proving this out some more states to teach people. Well, that, I mean, you just described a lot of government, which is, which is, which is anti-innovation, right? It's, it's counter to it because it's risky and this involves risk. Um, mm -hmm. We took on a lot mm -hmm. of risk we in did. choosing to do this. Uh, mm -hmm. um, you know, you're real entrepreneurs in a government area, which is rare. It's, it's very great. difficult. You have to incentivize people and, and people, I'm very encouraged to go on the optimism route that people that have chosen to be in public service that are in education do, did so because they had an honest interest in wanting to help other people. And, so, and, and the model that, we're, that, we've, that we've implemented reinforces that. And so I, I do think, at the, back to the data component, you know, the, the federal level data um, has been 
It was there, it was available with gainful employment, then it wasn't. So it goes back and forth. States have a lot of ability to generate these data at a state-based level, and many of them are. Um, where we can see more progress in UI wage record linkages to higher education data, that's going to drive accountability and transparency. Well, that's going to be a more informed consumer. Well, I'm excited to teach more, more governors and more legislators on the state level about this. Is there anything else? I could, I could offer you this in terms of some of the lessons we learned. If you look at the executive team at TSTC, of the top seven executives that we have, six of them came out of corporate America. You're, you're entrepreneurs. And you're we're, business people. we're entrepreneurs. We're, we're, we are folks who spent the early part of our career getting up every morning and going out and earning a living. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when we came to government, we knew that true innovative value was going to come from calculated risk taking. Love that. It. A, a taking a risk whose yield would be worthy of the investment is the mentality that we brought to this effort. And when the legislature gave us a chance, we took that opening and created what we have today. That's awesome. Well, that's what makes our society great is entrepreneurs who take risks and mm-hmm. who help the best ideas win no matter what area it is. So entrepreneurs like you gentlemen make, make all of us optimistic for our country. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.